Julie Remeyer's new book, Through the Shadowlands, is a fascinating story about chronic fatigue syndrome. And it has a particular resonance for me personally. I have a good friend who lived in my house some years ago who had chronic fatigue syndrome. And because of her illness, she lost pretty much everything that she held dear because of this disability. She was no longer able to work or ride horses or dance. She had to move away from home and family. And all of this she handled with a real grace and equanimity and with a remarkably objective scientific attitude. It was really impressive and it made me think a lot about how I might handle it if I had so much loss in my life. So when this book came out, I was really happy to see that it was by someone who was not only a science writer, but also a person who actually had the disease herself. What's hard about chronic fatigue syndrome, which you'll hear, is not only that it's a debilitating illness, but also how people respond to it. Doctors don't understand it. A lot of people in one's life don't think it's even real. And then there's another subgroup of people who think that they and only they have the cure, whether that's Eastern medicine or a special diet or their spiritual guru. And the reality is those things rarely, if ever, actually work. So this is a book that can give people a reality check about this illness. And it's a reminder that even while we've understood many diseases, we've eradicated smallpox, we have treatments and vaccines for illnesses that used to kill people, there are still other diseases that are not well understood and have as yet no really good treatments. So let's go now to our conversation with Julie Raymeyer. I'd like now to welcome Julie Raymeyer. She's a science writer and mathematician. She's author of the new book, Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into an illness science doesn't understand. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you. You will be reading, by the way, on June 1st at 6 o'clock at the Steve Elmore Gallery here in Santa Fe and June 5th at Bookworks in Albuquerque. And we can talk about that a little bit more at the end of the show. But this is a fascinating book about an illness called chronic fatigue syndrome, also called myalgic encephalomyelitis. Well um, done pronouncing that. I'm <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I don't know. Not sure exactly. Will you explain what, what each piece of, of those words mean? But this is something that, you know, somebody like you might have written about as a science writer, a science journalist, but then you got the disease yourself. What was it like when you first started having symptoms? How did you come to realize that it was an illness and not just that you were like run down and stressed? Initially, I did think I was just run down and stressed. It was a, a hugely stressful time in my life. I was building my own house with my own hands. I was working full time, which was really more than full time. And my husband at the time was quite ill. So it was an over the top stressful time. So I thought, well, I'm tired. Of course, I'm tired. Like, Who wouldn't be tired dealing with all of this? But it was a level beyond that. You know, I remember, for example, walking down the hallway to the bathroom and trailing my hand along the wall because I was afraid I'd pass out. The other thing about it was... And you were young. I was young. Yeah, I was in my late 20s. The other thing that, in retrospect, was probably the most alarming thing about the symptoms that I had at the time was that I couldn't exercise the way that I used to. And in particular, when I tried to exercise, it made me feel much worse. And in particular, the next day, I felt much worse. That's actually the hallmark symptom of chronic fatigue syndrome. Despite the name, fatigue is not really at the core of the illness. Um, the problems with exercise are much more central and indicative that that's what's going on. And that 
really is a strange symptom because for most people and and everybody's kind of common knowledge is that exercise makes you feel better. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, this is an illness that is still very much in the process of being understood. The subtitle of your book says, An Illness Science Doesn't Understand. And you compare it to other illnesses like ulcers, which were thought originally to be caused by stress. Everybody was like, oh, the stress is going to give me an ulcer. And, and then it turned out to be a specific bacterium, and they could kill that bacterium, and now there's basically no more ulcers. And this chronic fatigue syndrome is an illness whose causes are still not well understood, not established. I mean, you can read the Wikipedia article, and it's sort of, can, you can read the Mayo Clinic article, and it's sort of confusing. And one of the things that drives patients crazy is that it's dismissed by many doctors as a psychosomatic or psychiatric illness. Tell us about your experience and the experience of other patients in this respect. Yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. The science is actually really clear that it's not psychosomatic. I mean, we actually really do know that at this point. That's not in doubt. But the word hasn't gotten out. So both regular folks and doctors commonly think it's just people being lazy and not pulling themselves together and, you know, maybe not taking care of themselves. And if they just ate well and exercised and um, weren't such lazy complainers, they'd be fine. Um, And so many people who have it, like you, are people who loved to take super long hikes and build their own house by hand. That is not the (laughs) hallmarks of lazy people. Right, right. Yeah, the reality is so different from that. For many years, I was just kind of like something wasn't quite right with my body, but I wasn't convinced that I had any serious illness. And then in late 2006, I woke up one morning and I couldn't walk barely like stagger across the room and so then I was like okay well something's obviously really wrong here and so I went to a neurologist because it seemed pretty clearly to be a neurological problem it felt like a combination of my legs being incredibly heavy and like the nerve signals were getting lost on the way down so I went to a neurologist and he was the one who diagnosed me with chronic fatigue syndrome But he had no tests, no treatments, no other doctors to send me to, nothing. And for him, it clearly meant, please get out of my office. I have nothing for you. Right. So then I went to various other doctors, including uh, a neurologist who specialized in gait disorders, which seemed appropriate since clearly something was wrong with my gait since I could barely walk. Oh, gait, G-A-I-T. G-A-I-T, yes, uh, exactly. And... He, you know, walked, watched me stagger down his hallway and said it was not similar to anything he'd ever seen before. And he said, well, maybe it's conversion disorder. And conversion disorder is a nice term for it's all in your head. So it's a massive, massive problem. It's an especially severe problem in the UK where even now patients sometimes get locked up in psych wards. In Europe as well, there's a There's a tragic story of a young woman who was literally taken by the police from her parents' home. She was, I think, in her 30s at that point, so not, you know, not a child, and locked in a psych ward for years and kept from her parents. Her parents couldn't communicate with her for months at a time. She was only released very recently and got very much worse during the time that she was locked up. So it's an it's like a scary, scary problem. It's not just a nuisance that people don't understand. It really puts patients at risk. And 
On some level, it blames the patients and it blames their families. I mean, if, some, if somebody is being taken by the police from their families and locked up, what does that say? Yeah, and, and it comes from this theory that that the problem is just that people have gotten convinced that they're sick. So the parents are convinced the kid is sick and that's what's keeping them sick. Do you think that being a science writer and a mathematician helped you navigate this disease when once you realized that you were really sick? Very much so, very much so, on a, a lot of different levels. One thing was that it just gave me the confidence to deal with all the difficulties of it and to, to trust my own process of understanding the situation, you know, to doubt myself less. But of course, it also applied in, in a lot more direct ways. You know, I spent a lot of time digging through the scientific literature, trying to understand what was going on. I could talk to doctors and scientists and not get hoodwinked by the things they said. Right. Um, and it was helpful in also some kind of more surprising ways as well, particularly my experience in mathematics. As a mathematician, on one level, mathematics is very logical and proofs spell things out in perfect logical detail. But the process of discovery is really different from that. It's very intuitive. You kind of feel your way to a discovery based on your sense of how things tend to work in mathematics. And you just develop that over years of working, you know, puzzling out mathematical questions. And that gave me confidence in my own intuitive process to figure my illness out as well. And that was one of the kind of central tools for me in finding my way. You saw a doctor whose treatments helped a little bit for a while, but it didn't last. And then you started connecting with other patients through social media, and you found that a possible trigger for the disease might be mold. What did you think of that hypothesis when you first heard about it, and what did you do? Well, so let me set the context a little bit, which is important. In late 2010, I was in a pretty good period with my health. It varied a lot from day to day, week to week, month to month, and this was a good time. And so good that I could even do, you know, mellow hikes, like three-mile hikes, which was great. And then I was on one such hike, and I was a mile from home, and I thought, I'm a little tired. And I had learned that the central tool for managing my illness was to stop as soon as I thought that. And that if I kept going for even two minutes beyond that, that I would pay the next day. But of course... I was a mile deep in the wilderness and stopping wasn't really an option. So I rested for a while and then I walked some more and made my way out. And I figured I would pay for it with a day or two or maybe three days of pain and exhaustion and fuzzy head and swelling and all that kind of thing. But in fact, it turned out to be a year. <gasps> and so I spent a year bed bound about half the time barely able to work, and without any real prospects for getting better. I, as you say, I went to see top MECFS specialists, and they, had, they were wonderful, and they had some treatments that helped a bit, but didn't ultimately do all that much. At that point, I was living alone. I was often so bad off, I couldn't even turn over in bed. I couldn't really take care of myself in that state. 
I couldn't really make a living. I didn't have family to turn to. It was a really desperate situation. So I clearly had to figure something out. <laughs> and I managed to write a story about chronic fatigue syndrome for Slate magazine, the online magazine. And it was it was kind of the limit of what I could do. I mean, I spent a week after I finished, like, in a darkened room, just crawling to the bathroom from time to time, you know, mostly motionless in bed. But the result of that was that I got contacted by these patients. Um, they actually sent me friend requests on Facebook. And I got exposed to this kind of subgroup of patients who believed that taking extreme measures to avoid mold had had enormous positive impacts for them. So when I first heard about this, I thought, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. You know, I what I had heard from the kind of like mainstream scientific opinion was that mold could cause asthma, allergies, respiratory problems like that, but it couldn't cause neurological problems. And what I had heard was that basically the people who thought it did were pretty much nuts. So I was very, very skeptical of these patients. And, and of course, when patients are desperate, then they pursue all kinds of ideas. And I figured most of them probably really didn't amount to much. And I have to say, patients not only pursue like every possible idea out of desperation, they also spend tons of money on alternative healers. Absolutely. Many of whom don't do anything at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, I started seeing their stories on Facebook. And there was one story in particular from a young man who had spent two months living in the desert in a cargo trailer. And he posted pictures of himself running through the wilderness and lifting weights. And, you know, at that point, exercise, I'm doing air quotes here, exercise for me was like getting to the bathroom. You know, that right. was the limit of what I could do often. So the idea of being able to exercise again was just mind-blowing for me. And so I thought, well, I can just talk to these people. I mean, there's no harm in talking to them. And so so I reached out to them and and asked questions. And I was also really skeptical just because I had never had any obvious mold exposures. I had never gone into a building and suddenly felt much worse. I'd lived in lots of different houses. It never seemed to matter. So I figured, okay, well, even if this applies to some patients, it clearly doesn't apply to me, right? Um, and you lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right, exactly. Which is not exactly a damp right. climate. Right, exactly. So I so I reached out to them and said all of those things and, you know, said, so this doesn't apply to me, right? And they had kind of plausible things to say about all of those different objections. And their recommendation was that I spend two weeks in the desert with none of my own belongings. They said that all of my stuff might be contaminated. And their prediction was that I might or might not feel substantially better while I was there, but that when I came home and was exposed to where I was living and my own stuff, then I would react really clearly and strongly, and I would know that mold was doing me in. So I was still super skeptical. I mean, I didn't have a lot of reason to believe that it was true, although it was, you know, kind of as plausible a theory as any other that I'd heard, really. And I was partly drawn to it because it was an experiment, you know? It was, they, they predicted that I would have a really strong, clear reaction and I thought, okay, I can run the experiment and find out what happens. 
And so you actually did this experiment, which was pretty cumbersome in the sense that you not only had to make your way to Death Valley and set up at a place where there was not a whole lot of like vegetation or water or anything like that. But you also had to use either new or other people's possessions. So it was a real like, I mean, nothing even really familiar. That's that's right. Yeah, it was a it was a huge thing to do. And I was on a little bit of an upswing right then just enough that I thought maybe I could pull it off. But it was also pretty scary because there was a real chance that I would end up paralyzed in the desert alone with nobody to help. So it felt like a pretty big uh, risk to take. And it took a lot to just, you know, physically for me to, to make it happen. But you did. I did. What happened then? It was an amazing experience. I, you know, of course, being completely alone in the desert like that is a kind of profound thing. And then after I spent my two weeks in the desert, I didn't have any clear sense at that point of whether it was working or not. You know, I I was going to have to get exposed to have any real sense of that. And I decided to go see this guy, Eric the Mold Warrior, he called himself. He lived in Reno. And he was the guy who kind of came up with this theory in the first place. And so I decided I wanted to go meet him. And part of the idea, too, was that he would take me on, on a mold tour to famously moldy places. And, you know, the prediction was that I would react to them. So I drove to Reno and I, I met him and we had lunch together. And he ranted and raved about how chronic fatigue syndrome researchers hadn't listened to him and how outrageous this was. And he described how he had stalked these researchers to tell them about his experiences and to force them to listen. And even then they wouldn't listen to him. Yeah, because stalking usually works. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe it? He asked me over and over. And I sat there in this restaurant talking to him and I just thought, I am so embarrassed. I am so embarrassed that I took this seriously at all, that I put so much into pursuing the theory of this clearly crazy person. Like, what has become of me that I would do something like this? Right. Here I am, Julie, the scientist and mathematician. With this raving lunatic. (laughs) But he was a patient. He was somebody who had been as sick as you or sicker and was climbing high mountains. Yeah, he, he uh, six months after starting Mold Avoidance, he was able to climb Mount Whitney in California. Which is a very high mountain. Very, yeah, I think it's... Uh, the highest in the highest country? Highest in the, in the lower 48 states, if yeah. I'm remembering right. Yeah, so, you know, he has an amazing story. So then he took me on this, on, on a mold tour, and the first day he took me just to a Whole Foods that he claimed was moldy, and... We walked around it, and, and he paused at one point, and he said, it's here. And I really, like, I had to work hard not to laugh. I felt like I have, I have like, entered a poltergeist movie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, he was then, like, the idea was that I would be feeling something, and so I'm, like, tuning in. And, and you know, of course, if you, like, really tune in, you can pick up on all kinds of random sensations, and I was like, well, does that feeling mean something? Does that feeling mean something? But there was nothing obvious at all. And by the time I left Eric and went back to my hotel, 
I was pretty convinced this was just all a bunch of hooey and and was pretty pissed off, really. Then I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't walk, which hadn't happened in a month or more. And I had this sensation that I can only describe as poisoned. Like, I just felt awful. I had been told that taking a shower would make a huge difference, which was fairly bizarre because taking showers had never helped me in the past. But I went and I took a shower and I was able to walk afterward and felt much, much better. And the idea is that you wash off the mold? Right. Yeah. Whatever little tiny bits of it. And we're talking, I mean... In this hypothesis, there are really small amounts that can trigger somebody. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's part of what makes it all kind of bizarre. The idea is that once you've gotten a big exposure and your body has gotten sensitized to it, then you can react to unbelievably small quantities, kind of like a peanut allergy. I mean, this doesn't operate solely through allergic pathways. It's a kind of different thing. Well, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. It's the difference between allergy, which this mold reaction is not. It's something different. It's exposure to toxicity. What's the difference between those two things? Right. So first of all, I I should say we don't really understand it very well because there's been very little research on it. So, you know, exactly how this works is not entirely clear. But what is clear is traditional allergy operates through particular pathways where histamines are released in the blood. And at least for many people who are sensitive to mold, that's not what's going on. They don't have super high levels of histamines running around. Though for some people, it's what's called a mast cell issue. And that does involve histamines, although it again works somewhat different from differently from traditional allergies. But the idea, the thought about how this is working is that the mold is actually basically poisoned your immune system and has directly done something bad to your body. (laughs) So it's not a kind of immune overreaction the way that an allergy is. It's operating in some different way. But again, we need to do a whole lot more scientific research to really understand what's happening with that. The long and short of it is that you got better. That's right. And that eliminating mold from your life entirely as as much as humanly possible was what made the difference. So you basically kind of lent a lot of evidence toward this ranting man's hypothesis. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, it was such a shock for me. So I, I had this experience in Reno where I where I did react. And then I came home and I reacted really strongly to where I was living, just as, as had been predicted. And so I stayed out of where I was living. I stayed away from my stuff. And a week after I got back... I was just hanging out outside on my land and found myself feeling pretty good and decided to go for a little walk with my dog, which I figured, you know, I probably wouldn't go far, but feel good to move around a little bit, make my dog happy. And I ended up walking to the top of the hill behind my house, which is 350 feet high. I hadn't been able to do that in a year and a half. And I was absolutely blown away. I mean, you know, I was crying. I took a photograph from the top of the hill of the whole Rio Grande Valley, this incredible view from up there, and emailed it to all my friends with the subject line, oh my God. Because that was the first indication that this whole thing was actually going to make me better. I mean, okay, it was exciting to react and to have the sense that that was the problem, but that didn't show that avoiding it would actually make me better. 
but yeah, being able to take that hike was just amazing. So you and many other people with chronic fatigue syndrome have worked very hard to eliminate mold, and actually it's made a huge difference. That's right. So is this something that researchers are now looking into? Only a tiny, tiny bit. I mean, there are some glimmers at this point of change of some people getting interested in understanding it. In particular, Nancy Klimas, who is one of the specialists that I went to see, has started studying it. And that's actually was really gratifying because she said explicitly that it was in part, at least in response to my my improvement and my writing about my improvement that triggered her to do that. Nice. Um, yeah, that was really, really gratifying. And and there's one other researcher who has started to get interested in it. But we're still really in the dark ages about mold. So one of the big questions for me when I had this kind of unbelievable experience for myself was it kind of posed a challenge for me. You know, here I am. I'm a science writer. I care about science. I believe in science, although I don't really like that phrase. And yet I'd had this experience that was completely contrary to what mainstream scientific opinion said was possible. And so I really wanted to understand, like, what's going on here? What do we know scientifically about mold? Does it make my experiences plausible or implausible? And why is there this belief that this couldn't be true? So I spent a lot of time digging through the research and talking to researchers. And what I found is, not surprisingly, really, science is done by human beings. And um, it's not a perfect process. And in the case of mold in particular, it was strongly influenced by the reaction of the insurance industry to court cases about mold. And the insurance industry really struck back and promulgated this notion that mold doesn't cause serious health effects at least not beyond respiratory symptoms. They actually really argued that it couldn't do anything serious at all, but then they were forced to back off a little bit. And that had a huge impact on attitudes, both among scientists and the general public and judges and all of that. And it's made it impossible for researchers to get funding to study it. So literally, it is pretty close to impossible to get research funding to study non-respiratory effects of mold at this point. And not surprisingly, that means that we don't have a lot of solid science showing that mold can cause non-respiratory symptoms. And that then reinforces this notion that it can't because we don't have any science showing it. So, right. you know, and, and so it's this, it, it's a self-reinforcing cycle. Now, how many people have this disease? We have no idea. Yeah. Um, we really have no idea. So chronic fatigue syndrome, we do have an estimate that it's about a million Americans. But in terms of mold, we don't have a clue because we don't know. Basically, we don't know what mold can do. So like how many people out there are being affected by mold and don't know it? I can't even venture a guess. You know, it could be a relatively small thing. It could be an enormous thing. And no idea. Time will tell maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Now, you did your own double-blind test that involved uh, basically contaminating a set of washcloths with mold and then having an identical set of clean, uncontaminated washcloths. Exactly. So, you know, I had all these kind of amazing experiences, and based on them, it was hard for me to imagine 
that I was wrong, <laughs> that mold really had nothing to do with it. But of course, the contention of the kind of mainstream scientists was that this was that this was all in my head, that it was what's called a nocebo effect, which is kind of the evil twin of the placebo effect. So the placebo effect is, you know, you take something and you think it's going to make you better. And so it does, even though the something you've taken hasn't actually literally done something. So th the idea is that the reverse is happening, that I've gotten convinced that mold does bad things to me. I get exposed to mold. The mold is actually harmless, but because I'm convinced of it, then it does indeed do bad things to me. So I wanted to know, I wanted really clear evidence, you know, could it be a nocebo effect? And so I did exactly what you described. I had identical washcloths, half were contaminated with mold from a moldy house. It had just been spread around a moldy house for a couple weeks. And half of them had been kept clean. And so I did it in very careful form. One person randomly chose a contaminated or an uncontaminated washcloth. He handed it to somebody else who didn't know whether it was contaminated or uncontaminated. That person brought it to me, so neither of us knew whether it was contaminated or uncontaminated. That's what's called double blind. Yeah. And then I held it up to my nose for a few seconds, and I said, okay, it is contaminated or it is not contaminated based on how it made me feel. And then handed it back and took a shower to clear off the contamination from me and did it again. And... The impact was so strong. I mean, I would hold the washcloth to my face and if it was contaminated, I would get crippled instantly. And like I needed help to get over the rim of the tub into the shower to rinse off. So after it, after I'd done a dozen washcloths, I was like, okay, this is all I can take. <laughs> Can't do this anymore. Whereas the uncontaminated ones, you had no reaction. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it was almost completely correct. That's I mean, right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And in particular, the kind of result when I crunched through the statistics was if I really couldn't tell the difference, if I was just, if I just got lucky guessing, there was only a 2% chance I would have done as well. Right. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty impressive result. And I ran it past a big time statistician to, you know, review the whole study design and everything. And he said he found it pretty convincing. This has been for you not only an illness, but a a really deeply personal and kind of introspective journey. And I was struck by a part of the book where you described a process of letting go by necessity, your ambition. And, you know, you've always been a very ambitious person. And then, but, you know, you when you're that sick, you have to find other ways of being. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that really is a very key part of the book and part of the experience overall for me. When I was in Death Valley, of course, I, you know, I had nothing to do particularly while I was there other than the kind of basic survival tasks. And so I spent a lot of time just sitting in my camp chair, kind of watching the colors of the desert change. And, you know, it was a very introspective time. And in particular, I had all my life had had this real drive that came from childhood, really. I'd grown up with a kind of extraordinary mother who was very powerful, but also kind of unable to function in the world. So from my earliest childhood, I'd felt this sense of mission to save my mother. And that, over time, sort of stuck with me in different forms. You know, I felt like I had this obligation to go be a success and do great things in the world. And being there in Death Valley, it was like, 
it just seemed ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I was so sick and, and there alone in the desert. It was just, it was just like, okay, this is, this is too much. Like, I, I can't do this. I give up. I quit. I'm done. <laughs> um, and so what I discovered was it was almost like a, you know, like a balloon popping, like it just was gone that drive and ambition and, and obligation, you know, it, it wasn't just a, an I want to, it was an I need to, I have to, I must, and it was just gone. And then I discovered this incredible kind of spaciousness to my life. Like, I didn't have to do anything, you know, just making my food and, you know, occasionally sweeping out the sand out of my tent, like that was success enough. That was all I needed to do, like just breathing. That was the only thing I had to do. And then life took on such a different character for me. It became this huge gift. And there was a sense of kind of spaciousness and possibility that had never existed before in the context of all of that drive and need and requirement. There were suddenly basically no requirements. And has that feeling lasted as you've recovered and continued to recover? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So before I went to Death Valley, I had this strange feeling that I was going to the desert to die. And it's not that I expected to literally be dead. You know, I didn't think that I was going to be carried out in a coffin or <laughs> something like that. Well, it was called Death Valley. Right. I know. It was so, I, I had to laugh at that. It felt so appropriate. It was like, like the universe had a little laugh. <laughs> but, but I, I just had this sense like life as I had lived it was over, you know, like I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't keep up with all those responsibilities and obligations being that sick. And so afterward, I've had this feeling like I really did die in the desert, like all of that, like the way I had structured my life, it was just gone afterward. You know, there are times when I will fall back into the mode of like, I must, I have to, I, how am I going to make all this work? I've got to figure it out. And then there will be this moment when I think like, I died out there in the desert. Like all of that is over. You know, it's not that I think I'm immune from suffering, not at all, but it's more like, it's okay. You know, like if I suffer, I suffer and it's not a failing you know, it's not that if I'm suffering, then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing or, you know, it's just an experience to be had. So that has very much stuck with me. And it's been one of the enormous gifts of this whole experience for me. I mean, it's not that I would wish chronic fatigue syndrome on anyone, but life has, life has a lot of suffering to offer all of us. It's just part of being alive. As the and Buddhists tell us. That's right. That's right. And this particular form of suffering brought me some some really major gifts. So where are you now in terms of your health? So when I'm able to avoid mold successfully, then I'm pretty darn good. I'm close to 100%. Avoiding mold is a challenge. And um, sometimes I'm able to do it really well. And other times I'm not. But overall, I have a level of control that's completely different than before I started mold avoidance. You know, at this point, when I'm not doing well, I can figure out what's gone wrong and figure out something to do about it. So my sense at this point isn't like, I'm all well, it's over. <laughs> um, but it's also, 
I don't feel victimized by my illness anymore. And it feels like just kind of part of what I deal with in being alive in the same way that we all have various challenges in being alive. What is your hope for the book? Well, you know, it's it's this kind of extraordinary moment right now, just before the book comes out, and, and um, I'm starting to see it doing its work in the world, but I don't yet know where it's going to go. Um, it's really, it's a, it's a kind of amazing time. I have pretty high hopes for the book, and we'll see what happens. There's, there are kind of a variety of levels of work that I hope the book does. Certainly, I hope that it'll be really helpful to patients, both patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and, and really people dealing with any kind of health challenge in terms of not just the specific strategies that ended up working for me, but kind of the overall approach that I took to my illness and my process of figuring it out, which I hope will be helpful to people regardless of whether the particular answers I found are, are relevant to them. I also hope it'll have a big impact on the kind of public understanding of chronic fatigue syndrome and mold illness and kind of these poorly understood illnesses overall. You know, I hope it'll sort of open some space in people's minds to think about it in different ways. I hope it'll have an impact on the research about chronic fatigue syndrome and mold illness. You know, I, I'm Nancy Klimas starting to research mold has been a really exciting thing. And there's been some other interest and I'm hoping more will come from that. But I also, my biggest hope for the book really is that it will reach people who don't have any particular interest in these illnesses and kind of open some space and possibilities for them too. Because really the, the fundamental issue the book is pondering is what do we do how do we create meaningful lives for ourselves in the context of fundamentally not being in control? And I think the strategy that most of us pursue most of the time is that we just don't think about it. <laughs> you know, we kind of we construct our lives for ourselves where we're kind of in control most of the time and we can just sort of put it out of our minds that that's an illusion. And and it's a that's not a bad strategy. It works pretty well most of the time. And then there are those times when it doesn't, you know, when things go wrong and we're forced to confront, oh my gosh, I am truly not in control here. And I can live my life as smartly and well and everything as I possibly can and things can still go horribly, horribly wrong. And like, how do you live with that? Obviously, I face that in the particular context of chronic fatigue syndrome. But really, it's something that most of us at some point in our lives have to deal with. And I was able to find for myself some approaches that, that really worked for me. So my biggest hope for the book is that people will sit down and read it, that they will be pulled into the story, that they'll read it just because it's compelling and, and fun and engrossing, and that they'll come out of it with a sense of a kind of ease, a kind of a perspective that allows them to be a little less afraid of that fundamental lack of control that we all deal with. And as a result, to have a little more kind of room to work in the world, you know, to have less constriction from that fear and, and more possibility in their lives. Julie Raymeyer is author of the new book, Through the Shadowlands, A Science Writer's Odyssey into an Illness that Science Doesn't Understand. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. 
And by the way, Julie will be doing a reading on June 1st at 6 o'clock at Steve Elmore Gallery on Paseo de Peralta in Santa Fe, and on June 5th at Bookworks in Albuquerque, also at 6 o'clock, and anybody can come and listen and ask questions. And uh... Absolutely. I think they're going to be really fun events. I, I'm planning to both read from the book and show some pictures and, and that kind of thing. I, I think they'll be a lot of fun, so I, I do hope people will come. Excellent. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. To find out more about Julie, you can go to her site, julieraymeyer.com, and I will link to that at scienceradiocafe.org. Her name is, her last name is spelled R-E-H-M-E-Y-E-R. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. You can check out the website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter, at Radio Cafe MC, and at Facebook.com slash Radio Cafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at SteadyNetworks.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.